Hey, it's Damon. I extended this season to bring you today's episode, and I'm glad I did because it gives me a chance to thank a new supporter of the show on Patreon. Brandy, a former guest, sent me a note to say her student loans were paid off, so she felt like it was a good time to give her support. I loved seeing that message because it told me that supporting this show for the benefit of other adoptees has been on her mind and it was important enough to her to commit when the time was right. Thank you, Brandy. Whenever the time comes and you feel ready to support the Who Am I Really podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash WAI really and join the growing number of adoptees, birth parents, and supporters of the constellation who support the show. Okay, last one for the season. Let's go. I was imagining this Hallmark movie moment where we'd run in slow motion and embrace. And it would be a, this incredible moment, like all these years. And she would say, I've been searching for you all these years. And I would say, oh, I've been looking for you all these years. And isn't it wonderful that we're back together? And tell me everything. And it just didn't happen that way. It was just like the door was slammed in my face. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and my guest today is writer, director, producer, Brian Elliott. We chatted while we were both in Southern California. Brian grew up feeling underprioritized by his adoptive mother, so at an early age, he had ambitions of finding his birth family. He called a long list of women, only to realize she was among those who had repeatedly said, sorry, it's not me. Maternal secondary rejection was solidified with the threat of legal action, but later legal correspondence clarified his birth father's identity, a man he had searched for for decades. It took some coaxing, but Brian was finally granted full access to his paternal family. This is Brian's journey. Brian was born and raised in Southern California. He was adopted as an infant in his adoptive mother's first marriage. Brian described his life in boyhood as a bumpy road as his adoptive mother bounced from husband to husband, prioritizing the men over her son, a third wheel with his adoptive mother and the men she chose. She married multiple times before he was a teenager, so Brian really began to question his reality. It started me thinking or questioning, you know, like, am I in the right family? Am I in the right place? Because I didn't grow up with a dad. And, you know, my mom was a decent person, but she just made really poor choices. Didn't have a lot of self-confidence. Always seemed to choose the wrong guy. And I was certainly a third wheel in this scenario where, you know, she was picking these other men, leaving me sort of, you know, hanging to find a place to stay. Could be with grandma and grandpa, could be with friends. But I was certainly, you know, not the first priority. And that, that became very clear to me pretty early on. And then, you know, sort of this rinse, wash, rinse, repeat pattern, you know, it became yeah. sort of patternistic for me. And I, and I got kind of wise and didn't want to be in that cycle anymore. Can I, can I ask you, I want to dig in on something that you said. You said, yeah. I started 
to wonder if I was in the right family. What did, what yeah. do you mean by that? I, as I became older, I realized that I didn't really fit in with this family. I mean, I was made to feel like I was one of them, but I was feeling like an outsider. And I think it had more to do with the fact that I was feeling this, what I now know to be categorized as like a second rejection or a second abandonment, you know, as I've read some of these books like, you know, Lost and Found or The Primal Wound, which really helped me understand that trauma and some of these separation things that happen when you're adopted, even if it's a, a baby that you, you don't have the memories, the hard memories, like you would say of, you know, going to Disneyland or something as a kid, but, but the, you have these repressed memories or they carry with you in some, and affect you in some way. I realized that based on her decisions and me feeling like I was, you know, not part of the decision-making process and certainly wasn't the beneficiary of the decisions. I felt like I started questioning like, okay, maybe I've got to fend for myself. Maybe this is up to me to make things good or it's up to me to be happy instead of relying on a, a parent or a guardian to, to help me find my own way. I need to find my own way. That's really what kind of propelled me into my search too, which started like around age 12, wow. right around when the second divorce started. Brian's mother also adopted his sister, who is four years younger than himself. He admits the two of them never really got along. The adoptive siblings were complete opposites. Brian was super into sports like baseball, soccer, and football, but his sister was the furthest thing from an athlete. To top things off, their mother didn't foster their relationship much at all. That thing many parents do, go, play with your sister, intended to create a bond between siblings, there was none of that. Brian and his sister went their separate ways. I looked at it in the beginning as rebelling, like she got into drugs and alcohol early. And now I know that's probably due to, you know, the, the circumstances. I was too busy playing sports to get into trouble, but she basically moved out when she was like 15 and lived with friends and other people until she graduated high school. And then basically, you know, I didn't see her for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that piece about my mom didn't force us to play together. There's definitely like in, and forgive my terms here, sort of a healthy nuclear family is the best way I can think to put it. There's definitely this parental guidance. Be nice to your sister. Go play with your sister, right? And, and, if, yeah. and if you guys were left to be on your own separate planets in this universe, there would be no connection whatsoever. Even if you could have bonded as adoptees, there was none of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, by contrast, so I have kids, and when they were younger, as a punishment, we used to make them hold hands <laughs> or, or hug it out. <laughs> you know, like, all right, you got, you're fighting? Great. Assume the position as a hug, and you will sit there and love each other until you're done fighting, <laughs> you know, that kind wow. of thing. So there's just none of that. That's really fascinating. Wow. Yeah. So tell me, you said that your search, your search started at about age 12. What did that even look like? Because most kids aren't even feeling empowered enough to think, 
let me go out there and find let me let me examine this more deeply especially guys guys don't tend to be very emotional or thoughtful at that time tell me what was going through your mind when you were 12 i think my life was turned upside down with the divorces you know the first one i didn't really remember or you know have conscious memories but i do have little flashbacks of being in a courtroom i think i was 8 years old and being sort of whispered in my ear like what to say to the judge about who I wanted to live with and and why I wanted to live with them so at the time they were arguing who had custody right and so my my adopted first dad was in Rhode Island and I would Damon I, I look back on it kind of in horror now I can't believe this happened but I was five years old and they had joint custody at the time and I got on an airplane by myself at LAX, you know, my mom walked me to the terminal and a nice flight attendant held my hand and took me to an airplane. And I remember sitting in an airplane seat like American Airlines and flying from LA to Rhode Island by myself. And I'm five because they had joint custody. And I remember sort of this first class kind of service. At least it was the, the feeling I felt like this flight attendant was waiting on me hand and foot like, bringing me food and snacks and like making sure that I had a good, but can you imagine you're five years old and you have a flight to the East coast from the West coast Unbelievable. and you're by yourself. Yeah. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. Like that happened. And this was, you know, I, I, my guess is you're around my age and there was no iPads and phones and digital devices that, you know, mm-hmm. can suck the time out of your day. You know, back then at five years old, you're just sitting here with probably three books and a coloring book, you know, and, Wow. wow. And plenty of food and snacks and yep. ginger ale, yep. you know, <laughs> yep. placating. Uh, and you're right. It would be fearful, too. I mean, this is a big plane with a bunch of stranger, strange adults around you. Oh, man, I could imagine that would be really sort of traumatic and a reminder of how you're not prioritized because nobody came with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as a as a father, now, I can't, can't get my head around that. If that were the case today I, I would be sitting next to my kid and you know i'd literally drop him off and you know if it came to that right but anyway so that was my, that well, was my life and yet you know i didn't i didn't even blink it was just like okay this is what we're doing okay this is i i i've always been kind of a good adoptee and just kind of gone with the flow like oh okay this is what's happening okay i guess i'll do it oh you're getting divorced uh, we're moving from our house okay oh I, i'm not going to the same school anymore oh i'm being torn from my friend group and now i've got to make all new friends again oh okay yeah oh baseball season's canceled okay you know it's like it just became the norm you know to have my life disruptor turned upside down so i think i finally started getting a little bit wise when i'm 12 and, and after the second divorce i was just like all right I guess it's up to me now to figure things out because the adults in the room are screwing everything up. Mm-hmm. And so this is a reflection I have as an adult today. I don't think as a kid I thought about that. I think I was thinking, hey, I think I'm curious about finding who my biological mom and dad are. Right? That was just the, the surface thought. But I think under the surface, you know, all of these things that I'm expressing now were probably what I was thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't, couldn't articulated at the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and to go back real quick, one of the things that I've noticed, a lot of adoptees will say that they just kind of went with the flow 
And what I think part of that, and listen, as a child, you do what your parents have set up. If everything feels like it's broken and discombobulated and all of it all the time, and but that's all you've ever known, then that is your norm. You know what I mean? It's not disruptive if it's always been what everybody else would think is disruptive. You know what I'm saying? So the things that you grew up with were just how you grew up. You didn't grow up with a certain kind of structure and a certain kind of support and a certain kind of love. And then suddenly things were changed. It was always that way for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also think in a, you know, like maybe a defense mechanism or resilient kind of way, all the negative that was happening, somehow, some way, my brain decided, uh-uh, no, we're not doing that. We're going we're gonna to keep it positive. We're going to, I don't like all this sadness and stuff that's happening. I want to choose the other direction. And so I think as a defense mechanism, I bounced back the other way hard, like maybe even overcorrected a bit. Like, you know, I threw myself into sports. I mean, you know, we're talking Little League and, and AYSO soccer. And I mean, I was, my schedule was full of sports. Wow. And that was what that was probably, again, looking back on it now, if I'm thinking about it, that was me escaping to a safe place. Brian mentioned that he started searching when he was 12 years old. I asked him to describe what a search looks like for a kid at his age. He said he didn't have a lot to go on. But when you hear what artifact Brian had from the day he was born that identified his birth parents, you might think he had a lot to start with. Brian begins with the story of his conception and delivery to set the scene for how he got this clue for where to start his search. So here's what happened. My biological mom was 17 years old and in high school, and her and her boyfriend took the relationship too far. She got pregnant, but she didn't tell her parents that she was pregnant until the day I was born. So she lived at home, carried me to term, you know, nine or 10 months that full, I was fully baked. And uh, her dad had a pretty successful business. So he was off working. Her mom was a school teacher. So she was at school. She was at home sick that day for obvious reasons. And she calls my dad, who's at football practice and says, I need a ride to the hospital. I'm, I'm having contractions. I think I'm gonna have this baby. And he comes by, picks her up and takes her to the hospital in LA. Then the hospital, because they're minors, notifies the parents. The parents find out she's in the hospital having a baby. I can imagine sort of all hell breaks loose because it's a very, you know, religious, conservative family where having a kid and not being married is seen as super shameful and a sin and, you know, maybe a tarnish the family name, all that stuff that was happening before Roe versus Wade. And the family doctor who was in on the delivery also knew of a family that was in the congregation, the church congregation. They went to the same church, they had the fam same family doctor and, and knew this other family, this woman who was 25 years old, who, who couldn't have children the natural way and said, hey, both families are my patients. One girl's 17, not ready to get married and, and wants to give this baby up for adoption. And I've got another family here who wants a baby. Let's do a deal. And so I'll, sort of a handshake deal was done within 
ours. And my dad and mom signed the relinquished forms, signed the parental rights away. And after one day in the hospital of tests and all that, then I was taken home on the second day by my adopted mom. And that was that. And I didn't have any artifacts. My adoption was closed. My records were sealed away. But someone, whether it was a, a nurse or someone had written down the names of my biological parents on one of those little hospital napkins, you know, where you, you get served apple juice and, you know, they give you a napkin with your jello or whatever. On a hospital napkin was written their names. Wow. And, and that's the only artifact I had to find them, a tiny little breadcrumb. That breadcrumb had been tucked in the memory box that Brian's adoptive mother kept with other meaningful things, like a clipping from his first haircut and other infant artifacts. At 12 years old, with multiple divorces behind them, Brian was gravitating toward finding his roots and, hopefully, the family he did fit into. When he was a teenager, Brian did research on how to petition the court to get his original birth certificate, or OBC. He wanted more evidence about who his birth mother was. Brian doesn't think his adoptive mother knows he was searching, or at least she kept her mouth shut about it. If she did know, her silence spoke volumes. Brian wrote letters to the court, but he was denied access to his OBC. Making no progress on his quest, the search was paused until Brian saw the growth of the internet and the increased availability of public records. Back in the day, the old phone book that cataloged everyone's name, address, and phone number was called the White Pages, and with the growth of the internet, the White Pages were increasingly available online in digital form. Public records of marriages, divorces, property purchases, and more were also becoming available, which Brian could cross-reference in his search. The White Pages had several hundred women with his birth mother's name who kind of fit some criteria of possibly being the woman he was looking for, so he started cold-calling the women. One by one, Brian shared that he was doing family research, stating his birth date and hospital where he was born, and named the doctor who delivered him. One very kind woman after another told Brian that his genealogical work was wonderful, they were sorry they were not the woman, and consistently wished him luck finding his roots. Eventually, his list was exhausted. Recognizing he was born in the Van Nuys Hospital in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California, Brian thought, if a woman goes to the hospital to deliver a baby, she's likely to drive to the very nearest hospital. Drawing a 10-mile radius around the hospital, Brian focused on the high schools in the vicinity where a young teen mom may have been a student at some point. Pinpointing the high schools, Brian did the classic high school yearbook search to try to find the young woman's photo. One by one, Brian went to the high schools, spoke to the librarians, shared his research project, and they granted him access to the appropriate yearbooks. And when I went to Hollywood High School, I did the same exercise. And there, like basically right around you know, the, the junior year, I flipped the page and I found same name, you know, same year of my mother. And I thought, okay, maybe this is my mom. And for the first time I had a picture. Of course, it was black and white. You know, it was from the 60s, but I had a picture of someone who could be my mom. And, could you see um, yourself in that picture? I'm just curious. Not really, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I tried. I tried really hard. But, you know, it's like, what is it, like two inch by two inch <laughs> Right, little. right, right. 
you know, but it was something. It was something for the first time that I thought maybe I had something. Brian tried everything he could, but he wasn't gaining traction in his search. He contemplated hiring a private investigator, but he couldn't afford it at the time. A few years went by, and he went back to the White Pages and revisited his list of names, thinking about his maternal grandparents. Through public records, Brian found a death record for a possible grandparent couple, and they had lived just a few miles from his home at the time, and a few miles from Hollywood High School, too. Brian visited their gravestones in the local cemetery. His maternal grandpa had passed away at a young age. His maternal grandma had passed only a few years before he found their graves. The caretaker at the cemetery, taking pity on Brian's desperate search for identity, bent the rules and let him see the burial records at the cemetery. There, on the cemetery records page, was the name, address, phone number, and signature of the woman who could be his birth mother. So the plot thickens here, Damon. As I went back to my list, my way pages list, and I cross-referenced the telephone number, and sure enough, she was on that list. So what I realized is I had called her. In fact, I probably called her three or four times over the years, and she'd thrown me off the scent. And I realized that she was she was lying to me. It's, I just had this light bulb moment like, oh, I hadn't even considered that she might be lying, <laughs> but she was. And that's when it dawned on me, oh, okay, something, something is wrong, right? When you think about, I've actually spoken to this woman more than once, and she's told me repeatedly that she's not the woman. How does it feel to have that reflection and think, uh-oh, this woman actually doesn't want to talk to me? Well, this is what a lot of adoptees describe as being in the fog. And I was very much still in the fog, Damon, and very much giving her a hall pass, like, oh, I'm sure there's a good reason for this. I sort of know now why, but I had suspended all negative emotions and just given her the benefit of the doubt, like, oh, there must be a good reason for this. I don't know what it is, but like, I was more dazed and confused than any other emotion. And again, this is a thing with the good adoptee, right? Like you become a bit of a pleaser because deep down, you don't want to be rejected again. Deep down, you don't want, you know, there's this idea of return to sender. Anyway, I just suspended all emotions, probably because I was in denial and in shock. And I just like, oh, this is confusing. A few years passed while Brian dealt with his confusion. He got married, had a few children, and he was thriving in business and his life was going great. Brian decided to write a letter to his birth mother introducing himself strategically putting his best foot forward with a picture of his growing family in their Sunday best. He wanted to project calm while conveying in his words that he didn't want anything except to know his origin story. After years of searching, he conveyed how thrilled he was to finally have found her. Brian gave his phone number and address and offered to set up a meeting or a call for the pair to finally get to know one another. Brian left things wide open. He tried to empathize with the woman, saying he couldn't imagine what it was like to give up a child, but he wanted her to know that her plan worked and he was doing just fine. But while writing that letter, Brian did wonder how a person could ever give up a child. Because as a parent, what went through my mind is, how do, how do you give up a child? And how do you give up a child to strangers? Like, I would wonder at least once a year, Damon, did I do the right thing? Did I, did I give my little boy 
to strangers and are they hurting him are they or are they loving him and and raising him the way that i would yeah like i would just things that i wished for yeah yeah because you don't know it's 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 a complete crapshoot right like you just don't know people you know put on a happy face or put on a good face or maybe you think they come from a good family or they they have money but that doesn't mean that they are good people and not abusive or dangerous or criminals like you know can't judge a book by its cover apathetic just not that awesome that's also very traumatic for a child who's been displaced right. from their original home. So, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of scenarios. I'm with you 100%, Brian. Yeah. And so I, I tried to make that clear to her. I said, I just want to let you know that everything worked out. You know, I had a good childhood, and I'm a happy, thriving adult now with my own family. And I would be thrilled to meet you if, if you're into it. And so I sent that letter, and I got a letter back about a week later. And... This time it, it came in a very proper envelope. It was intriguing. I thought, and I've told the story before how when you're adopted, the worst part, I think, is the not knowing because your mind starts to wander all these different directions. Like, you know, where I came from, who am I? On the far right side of fantasy land, you think, is my dad, you know, a professional athlete? You know, because I'm an athlete too. I thought, well, maybe. Maybe my dad and, and, and mom are like these amazing athletes and, and that's why I love sports so much. And who knows, you know, maybe they live in a mansion somewhere and I'm going to be whisked away to a different life than the life I'm having right now. And, and on the other side of the spectrum, you wonder, you know, am I the product of a violent crime? Like, am I a rape baby? Is that how I got here? Yeah. And it's like everything in between, like so far into the spectrum, on the positive side of, of the fantasy, to the far other side of the nightmare, you just don't know who you are, where you came from, the circumstances of your birth. Yeah. And so when I got the envelope back, I thought, oh, this, maybe I'm special. <laughs> maybe <laughs> m- maybe the circumstances of my birth are a bigger deal than I thought. And I opened the envelope, and the letter says, Dear Mr. Elliot, our client is in receipt of your letter. And recognizes and admits that she is your biological mother, but wants no contact. And in fact, this is our official notice to put you on notice that if you have any further correspondence or try to send her or contact her anything, we won't hesitate to file a restraining order against you. Wow. That's so cold. And it was a sucker punch. I was shocked. Like, I was imagining this Hallmark movie moment where we'd run in slow motion and embrace. And it would be a, this incredible moment, like all these years. And she would say, I've been searching for you all these years. And I would say, oh, was, I've been looking for you all these years. And isn't it wonderful that we're back together? Right. And now tell me everything. And it just didn't happen that way. It was just like the door was slammed in my face. And and threatened with a <laughs> threatened by the law, wow. and uh, and that was that was tough, and I was super confused. I was pissed. I was hurt. I was confused. I didn't know what happened. What hit me? It was like it was really hard. Yeah, because like as you said, you as an adopted person who's searching, you have an imagined idea of what the possibilities are, and of course, oh yeah, you skew towards the positive because that's going to feel good and awesome. And it's like a train almost barreling down the tracks. If you let your emotions go too far, that yeah. when this cold, 
letter from an attorney's office comes in the door, it throws like a truck in front of the train and just brings everything to this crashing halt. And, yeah. and that it's got to be hard to sort of recheck your emotions and redefine what you thought reunion was going to be like and sort of reexamine where does this leave me now? I was searching for this person and this person has clearly and definitively said, I don't want to know you. That's, it's really tough to, to circle back from that. And I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, that's a really hard thing to deal with. Yeah, it was. It was. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but it left me it left me in a in a funk. I mean, I was I was in a depression, let's call it what it was. Mm-hmm. I don't at the time I wouldn't admit that I was depressed, but that's clearly what it was because everyone everyone would like comment like, "Are you okay? What's up with you lately?" And I'd be like, "Oh, I'm fine. Just stress, you know, business." Busy. You know? Yeah. It wasn't it, it wasn't that. It, I was I was in a depression, you know. I, I wasn't in a a serious state where I was, it was dangerous where some people have depression that, that really becomes potentially dangerous for someone like self harm. I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I was just like, I was bummed out 10 X bummed out and it was under the surface. So like it was hiding under the stress of work or whatever it was, it was but it was there. Mm-hmm. Let's call it what it was. And, and then I, I think it was more disappointing too, because I had the context of being a father and as I had my own kids and how wonderful it was, I just, and I was imagining someone giving me up. I just thought there's literally no way I would let go of my child. I would, if I had no money and I was broke, I would live in a cardboard box under the freeway somewhere with my kid and I would make it happen. If I had to beg for money or whatever, I would do what it takes. Cause I, I went through that exercise in my mind, just thinking how hard it was to give me up. I had a lot of empathy. And that's why my heart was wide open. It's like, wow, I'm willing to forgive any reason because there must be a good one behind why you had to give me up. And I'm not angry about that. You know, I'm just happy that I found you. And then to have that reaction, it made me even more sad because I had these expectations. Mm-hmm. So if I, you know, if I can impart any advice to any one that's searching reunion, whether that's if you're a biological parent or if you're I don't know, like me, I would say, I wish I had a heads up. I wish I had someone helping me navigate what could be choppy waters to tell me, all right, Brian, if you really want to do this, you better buckle up because let's plan for the worst and hope for the best mm-hmm. instead of the opposite. Like this, the, here are the different scenarios that can happen. Here's the worst case scenario. And for me to be emotionally ready for that and willing to accept it. Right. And so that's what I would say to any adoptee or, or parent who's in search, like be prepared for a negative outcome because you, you might run into one. And here are the reasons why, but I had none of that. <laughs> I just jumped right in the, in the deep, deep ocean and it nearly sunk me. I appreciate you giving that advice. It is really sound advice and it, and it, but it's also one of the challenging things about even attempting reunion is we, sometimes you just go for it and you just keep going. And it's hard to sort of pause and think to yourself, wait, how do I need to prepare myself for what the possibilities are? Like you just, yeah. you get a clue and then you go, great, I'm going to go explore this clue and it leads to another one or whatever. And it just feeds on itself and it can be very challenging to have what in effect would be a pause button to say, all right, what does the preparation look like for what might happen next? 
So oh, yeah. it's it's a well, it's a very tough thing to do. Well, and and I was I was voracious. Like every step along the way, when I got rejected or told no, like when the court said no, you can't have your birth certificate; it's sealed up. Like that just fueled my fire. I was like, oh, okay. So you're denying me my human rights. Like mm-hmm. I can't know my identity. I felt violated. I felt like I was enraged. Like it just fueled the fire to, to keep going. And so there was no wall you could put in my place that I wouldn't crawl over, bust through, dig my way under. Like I was going to find a way. Mm-hmm. And that's, <laughs> that's why I became so resourceful in this. And I, you know, if you want to call it luck. I would call it luck, but also it was just, I was tenacious. I worked so hard, no stone left unturned kind of thing. And like my mind took over and just like the drive I had to find, it was like almost like a tractor beam of sorts pulling me towards the truth. Like I needed to know the truth. And that's why, again, imparting advice, it's like you need to pause and quiet your brain a little bit get control of yourself and, you know, walk through as an exercise the possible things that could happen and make sure that you're mentally prepared for that. And then if and when you are, if you're ready to hear bad news or good news, then by all means, you know, plow forward. But like, you know, I didn't, I didn't do it that way and I got hurt. Even though the letter of legal action placed a barrier in between Brian and his birth mother, he continued the search looking for aunts, uncles, and biological siblings, as we adoptees often do. Brian said his birth mother's social media was wide open with no privacy settings so he could see his birth mother and peek in on her life as she moved from event to event, place to place. He could see she had a sister who had two children who were about Brian's age. He reached out to his oldest cousin, his biological aunt's first child, who also lived in the area. The man agreed to meet Brian at a coffee shop, but their meeting turned into a pseudo-interrogation. The man was defensive, questioning Brian's motives for what he actually wanted and why he was suddenly seeking answers at that time. Brian explained that he's never known his biological family, he can't get access to his birth records, and all of it is part of his identity, his roots. The cousin stayed defensive and kept things close to the vest not revealing anything to Brian, which left him confused. Following the trail, Brian discovered on Ancestry that the family had done extensive work on its family tree, going back 500 years to Scottish royalty. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, I am a prince, (laughs) after all. I am special. I'm living the pauper's life, but I guess I am a prince (laughs) by blood. That's me. That was just sort of like a running joke, you know. But yeah, I found all this this genealogy but the thing that intrigued me was their reaction that you know the, my basically my first cousins right and he told me in no uncertain terms damon he said brian you you cannot ever reveal that we met you can never talk about this and you know definitely don't tell your mom and i said oh dude, believe me we have no i can't have any contact you know like it's not it's not happening you know message received on that side he said and I asked him, why can't we talk? Why can't we know each other? He said, oh, it would ruin everything. He used those words. It would ruin everything. Mm. He said, well, nobody knows. It was like this. I was this incredible skeleton in the closet, apparently. And I said, well, why is that? Like, would it ruin her marriage? Oh, she's, she's, she's never been married. She doesn't have any other children. 
she's in a long-term relationship with a boyfriend, but it would just mess everything up. And that was puzzling to me. <laughs> and also kind of a joke because I said, well, she knows about me and now you know about me, <laughs> but she can't know that you know. And now your brother knows about me and your mom knows about me. So her sister knows. So everybody knows right. that I exist. And everyone you know, individually knows, but, but collectively we can't talk about it for some reason. And I just thought that's, that's, so, that's so strange. It's like the biggest open secret Backwards. that nobody yeah. can acknowledge. It's nuts. Right. It's it's like a joke, right? Like So so you guys are having you know Christmas together, and, and everyone knows, but no one knows that everyone knows. <laughs> like <laughs> right, right. Brian refocused on why his biological grandfather had died at such an early age, in his early 60s. Recall that the doctor who delivered Brian a guy named Dr. Doty, knew both his adoptive family and his biological family. Brian approached Dr. Doty, who was an elderly man when he found him, to try to get some answers, begging for details of the circumstances of his birth and searching for family medical history because Brian was concerned about his own health. Dr. Doty wouldn't tell Brian anything and took the whole story to his grave. Naturally, Brian assumed the doctor had honored the Hippocratic Oath he had taken decades before, so he kept searching for information through other sources. Years later, examining the hospital records on microfiche, Brian located his maternal grandpa's records, showing the man had gone into the hospital for a slipped disc repair, a complex but common surgery. So when he was on the operating table from the notes, it looks like the doctors had accidentally severed his spinal cord, had cut it on accident, cut down too deep, basically botched the surgery, and he died from complications on the operating table at the hands of the doctors. And so I sort of did my deductive reasoning again, which is my grandpa had a successful business. He had, I had found out that he had a business in Los Angeles, a metal stamping business. So what that means is you were creating metal plates that were stamped in these military contracts. So probably it was like the plates that would get put onto aircraft or military vehicles. And it's the way you keep inventory. Like you can count these vehicles, right? It's like a, a nameplate, like a dog tag for a vehicle. And so I surmised that it was a pretty successful business with these contracts. And when he died, I also assumed that because I knew that you know, talking to my cousins briefly, that my mom's sister, you know, she was not running that business. And so his business was probably liquidated or sold. And and then as a result of his death, there was probably a wrongful death lawsuit that had to have been, right? You don't, you don't just die on the operating table and then walk away. Like there had to be some sort of settlement because the hospital records were closed and all that. And so I was thinking, all right, well, business was, was sold and liquidated. There's probably a wrongful death lawsuit. And, and guess whose name was mentioned in that operating group? None other than Dr. Doty. Oh. So the doctor that delivered me a couple of years prior was also in on the surgical procedure wow. where my grandpa died. And so the light bulb went on. I thought, oh, this is the reason he was so tight-lipped because he was probably named liable in that lawsuit. He probably couldn't tell me because even though he was quite an old man at the time, there's probably legal implications and maybe would have ramifications to his younger family or 
whatnot. And that's probably the reason he couldn't tell me anything. Not it really, probably had nothing to do with maybe a little bit to do with the Hippocratic Oath, but probably more legal liability issues. Mm-hmm. And then I was also kind of doing the math, thinking, well, how much is a wrongful death lawsuit? I mean, this was the seventies. So let's say, Damon, it was $2 million or $5 million. Mm-hmm. Do you know what $5 million in, in the early 70s is today worth? I'm guessing it's 20. Yeah, it's it's $30 million wow. in today's money. You know. So then I started, again, this is all speculation, right? But it paints a picture of how your mind wanders with the not knowing is the worst thing. And I went back to that letter that my mom sent. And I was thinking, you know, a normal human, you don't want contact with someone. Like I have people selling pest control or solar panels door to door. And I just, I say, no thanks. And, and, and off they go. Or if you're, you know, grumpy, people say, you know, get lost or whatever they say, swear at you. That's what you do when you don't want to have contact with someone, right? Or, or, or if you're in danger, you fear for your safety, who do you call? You call the police, right? Hey, there's someone snooping around my house. You call 911, and that's what you do. But well, who do you call when you are you fear that your assets are in jeopardy? Mm-hmm. When you need to protect you call something, a, you call your lawyer. You call an attorney, yeah. That's right. And so, again, this is complete speculation, but I thought, uh-oh. What if my mom's reaction is, you know, based in her fear, because now everyone has passed away. Her sister passed away. You know, she's the last living relative, basically. She probably inherited a good sum of money from her dad's business, from the liability, the wrongful death lawsuit. And as I go back and remember that experience with my cousin, I bet my cousin understands that as well, that he's the other only blood relative that's in the picture. And then if I came into the picture, he would be competing with me. And so my oh, conspiracy errors. Oh, interesting. My conspiracy theory, it could be completely false, but my conspiracy theory is that he knows. And that's the reason I am not in the picture. So it's messy. It's yeah. complicated. You know, it's, how, how, it's, does, a, it's a, how does that feel to think that your potential ability to connect with your maternal family is driven speculatively by asset protection and money and money. It's really sad from my mind. I didn't go into this wanting anything, but just to know my identity, where did I come from? What are my roots? I, I figured out on my own that I'm, I have Scottish roots. You know, I have a Scottish heritage. I did. I wanted to know if anything runs in my family, cancer, diabetes, heart attack, you know, like I wanted just for my own benefit, my kids benefit. That's what I wanted. And I wanted some answers of what happened. You know, why did, why did you give me up? What were the circumstances around that? Like, were you forced? I can only imagine how traumatic it, it is to give up a child. I cannot get my head around that. I have so much empathy and I would be willing to give her a complete pass for any of that. I was never angry about it. I just wanted to know just from the, be able to fill in the blanks, fill in my story, like what it was. But to know that it could be about something else, it makes me sad for them. I'm thriving. I'm doing great. I want nothing. Right. And in fact, 
for those who are not informed about the law, when you're adopted and your biological parent relinquishes their parental rights, your rights are also severed in the process. So you have no, you're entitled to nothing. Even though you're blood related, Damon, you're entitled to absolutely zero from that other family. Once this paperwork is signed, that's done. It's absolute yeah. and it's finite. Fully severed. You yeah, you belong to the other family now. You know, that's that's your family. And whatever, you know, you may be entitled to of anything, that's on that side of the fence. You can't go back and, and have a redo or like make anything retroactive, right? Like, so even if I have claim to some castle in Scotland, I'm entitled to nothing, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. despite my, line my lineage or my, my birthright, my blood right. I have nothing. Yeah. I have a feeling that she doesn't know that and neither does my cousin, but so it makes me very sad uh, yeah. for them, not for me, but for them and me a little bit, just because it's so pathetic, but also on the other hand, it makes me feel like maybe I dodged a bullet. Like if that's, that's my family, yeah. then maybe, you know, I'm, I am better off without them. Yeah. That's and in some way it helps me move forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because one of the things that many adoptees will say is, you know, there's a toxicity in the biological family that they mm -hmm. choose not to be a participant in. And, yeah. and it does feel like a dodging of the bullet. You know, you're you've got kids and a family of your own. And that flaw in character may be showing itself through this monetary protection thing here, but might manifest itself in other ways. <laughs> And you, yeah. you could very well be dodging some serious challenges, trauma and drama by not being engaged with them. But on the flip side, you kind of want the right to know that. Like, let me in and I'll decide if I want to stay here or not. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a really and I think, tough part. And I think I was, if I was going to impart some more advice to adoptees, is this idea of nature and nurture. So babies are not, it turns out, a blank slate. You can't just you know, take them from one family, plant them in another family and assume that they're going to assimilate or be like that family, regardless of the color of their skin, you know, as, and as much as some families try with, with transracial adoptees to make them their own or, you know, make them feel like they're one of them, regardless of any of that, babies are not a blank slate, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to embrace the fact that that child came from another family or has another another home somewhere with DNA that's going to be passed on. And there's no getting away from that. But nurture is a thing too, right? So you can have a positive effect. So the advice is, if you discover that your family, maybe your your mom or dad were pirates and sailed the seven seas and, and pillaged all of these lands and did terrible things, that is your DNA. But it doesn't have to be your future. Like you can break that cycle, and you can become whoever you want to become in spite of your true DNA story. Mm -hmm. The opposite is true too. Right? You know, if you come from a, a family where you were nurtured in a very negative way, you grew up with abuse or emotional or physical things that are, are negative in some degree, you can also break that cycle, right? You don't have, that doesn't have to be your, your story either, your future. You can, you get to choose to write, your own story. The past belongs to them. Let's face it. You didn't have any control, but the present and the future is yours. And we get to choose 
you know, how we move forward in the present and in the future. When searching for his biological father, Brian replicated the same activities, documenting hundreds of men in the white pages who had the same name as the guy on the napkin, Bruce Kays. The napkin also indicated Bruce Kays was German and Jewish. Over the course of his search, Brian got the same results he had for his birth mother. Every man he encountered said no, it wasn't him. The second search felt the same as the first, so the alarm sounded early that someone might be denying their parentage. Searching for records for the man's family, Brian couldn't find anything. No birth record, death record, no high school yearbook information, and no one was admitting to being Brian's birth father. Brian was more adept at searching than he was in the first round, but his skills weren't yielding any results. Nearing the end of his rope, he decided to write a letter to his birth mother's attorneys to simply ask for information about who the man could be. Brian provided the man's name and asked for some information like last known whereabouts, where the man went to high school and college, and other clues that could help him refine his search. If his birth mother wouldn't be in contact with him, perhaps she was willing to help Brian move his focus to his birth father by providing a few easy answers. I sent that letter back to the attorney's office. A week later, I get a letter back, which basically was more bully tactics from the attorneys, like, how dare you contact us? After all this time, we thought we made ourselves clear that your mom doesn't want any contact. However, we do, we do notice that you're an idiot because you, you spelled your dad's name wrong. And you, you said your dad's name was K-A-Y-S. K -A -Y -S. Your dad's name is Carp, K-A-R-P. And, and I realized that they had inadvertently told me exactly the information that I was looking for, which is, I realized at the moment I was on this big wild goose chase that someone whoever wrote on the napkin all these years ago at my birth had written my dad's name wrong, that it was, it was not his, it was Bruce Carp. Wow. So they either transposed it from a document where he had written his name on a form or something, they'd written it wrong, or they'd heard it wrong or something. But anyway, someone with good intentions who had written it on that original napkin at the hospital writ, wrote his name wrong. And I'd been on like a 25 to 30 year goose chase. Oh, man. Now, when I had his name, that sweet irony was given to me by the attorneys. I went back to the internet, back to my methods. And within, damn it, I'm serious, like a minute and a half, 90 seconds maybe, I had him. Because wow. I could see the, I could see the paper trail that he had moved from the Hollywood area up to the Bay Area, and I would I would have bet all the money in my bank account that that was him. I was like, I got him. This is definitely him. Same age, you know. The public records that showed me he had a house in North Hollywood, and then he had a house up in the Bay Area. I was like, this is one hundred percent him, you know, or, or I'll eat my hat kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and and had his phone number. It was publicly listed in the white pages. So I was like, you know what? F it. I'm calling him. Like, cold call. <laughs> and so I, I called him up. And this was like, this is right around this time, like a couple of days before Father's Day. It was kind of about this timing. This was 2010. So I called him. A woman answered the phone. I said, I'm calling for Bruce Carp. She said, certainly. Handed the phone over to Bruce. He answered the phone. I said who I was. I was doing some family history research. My mom is this person. She went to this high school. I was born at this hospital at this time, this day. I think you might be my dad. He goes, yep, you got me. It's me. <laughs> wow. I, thought, I thought you might be calling one of these days. And it's just like this big sigh of relief. Like, okay, all right, it's on, let's go. And 
I told him what had happened with my mom. He was he was quiet about that, but he listened and he apologized. And then he started to fill in the blanks for me and told me kind of the whole story of how they had met in high school and were high school sweethearts and had been dating all through high school. They went to the Sadie Hawkins dance. They went to prom together. They, you know, from freshman all through basically her junior, senior year when she got pregnant that junior year and that he had picked her up from football practice when she called saying that she was delivering the baby, delivering me, that when they got to the hospital, he had actually suggested to her early on when she told him that she was pregnant, he said, you should have an abortion because, you know, we're too young to get married. And and she was not interested in that. She was not having it because she was pretty religious and that was just not an option for her. And he was Jewish, but not, not really practicing, not, you know, not a religious guy. He was just Jewish by heritage, by culture. He had not really told his parents. I mean, I think he said, he mentioned to his dad and his dad said, said something like, well, are you taking care of it? And he said, yes. And his dad was like, fine. And that was the end of it. And <clears throat> that he signed the paperwork at the hospital. And that was pretty much it. You know, they broke up. They never spoke to each other much after that. He graduated. He was a year older than her. He was 18. She was 17. He was a senior. She was a junior. And at graduation, they basically parted ways. He moved up. This was like, you know, the year of the Grateful Dead, uh, Janis Joplin. This was the free love era. This, uh, he moved up to the Bay Area and, and went to work in the wine business, but, you know, basically lived what you would imagine a hippie would live like. And just had a terrific life, very, you know, super colorful, fun life. And, but he filled in all the blanks for me. And it was, it was amazing for me to get closure on that story. Brian was feeling good that some of his worst fears hadn't come true in his origin story and that his parents had been in love and were, in, and were dating for years. He learned interesting pieces of their story, like his birth parents met at the shoe store where his birth mother worked. Bruce had held on to a box of keepsakes he had kept his whole life from when he was a young man. When Brian flew up to San Francisco to meet Bruce, he brought the shoebox full of prom pictures, photo booth pictures, and letters he had kept. Fifteen years after Brian's birth, when Bruce's bachelor days were over, he got married and later had two daughters. They're half-sisters by blood, but to Brian, they're just his sisters. I realized that one of them looks exactly like my oldest daughter and I showed him a picture of my family. He's like, oh, this, yeah, the genetic similarities are so interesting. Oh, and by the way, I left this out of the story, but he, before we met, after he admitted that it was me, he said, let's just be safe and, and do a DNA test. Mm. So we, we did a, we did a DNA test and it was 99.9999999, you know, <laughs> uh, as close to 100% as you can get right, right. Uh, for accuracy. And that sort of sealed the deal for him. It closed the loop for me and it, I got closure like never before. The circumstances of my how I got here, that story was was filled in. So now I knew. I knew what happened. And he he told me all the details about how she had not told her parents about her pregnancy, that she hid it from them wearing these loose fitting clothing and sixty style dresses that you could hide a pregnancy. She he showed me all the high school pictures that they had taken together and that he had kept that she was thin and petite and she could kind of get away with that she didn't gain too much weight with me he told me how her parents were not crazy that you know they they were a christian family and he was jewish and 
they weren't wild about that. They were, he didn't go to, as far as to say that they were anti-Semitic, but you can kind of get the idea that it was not the most ideal relationship that she was dating someone outside of, of their faith. Yeah. 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 And certainly that, that he had got her pregnant was probably, you know, a deal breaker. And my guess is that, and he, he also told me a little bit about her dad's business and he, he filled in some, some of the gaps for me too, where he said, Oh yeah. I mean, they didn't live in like this giant estate. Like you couldn't, it wasn't that kind of wealth, but he said on her 16th birthday, her dad rolled up a brand new 19, whatever, 60, like the first off the factory floor convertible Mustang. Oh, he said it was yeah. the, the most gorgeous car he'd ever seen. It was like this incredible emerald gold with white interior convertible Mustang. And, you know, if you're 16 in high school and you're getting that car, you're not poor. Things are pretty good for you. Yeah. Living in North Hollywood. But anyway, a lot of a lot of the backstory he filled in and it was just like it was everything I wanted. Bruce shared that his parents, Brian's paternal grandparents, lived to a pretty old age, dying of emphysema after decades of smoking several packs of cigarettes a day. Bruce suspected the heart attack he suffered in his 40s was a direct result of years of inhaling secondhand smoke from his parents. The news that his paternal lineage was otherwise healthy gave Brian some peace of mind as someone who had lived a healthy, athletic life for himself. Continuing the search for history and artifacts, as we adoptees often do, Brian dug into his paternal family's origin story. He located Ellis Island immigration records and the ship manifest from the Carp family coming over to the United States in the 1800s. Brian found records of the family settling in upstate New York and pictures of a great-grandfather multiple generations back with a long beard flanked by his two sons holding sickles in front of cornstalks. Brian was introducing Bruce to his own history and images that Bruce had never laid eyes on before. So all that just cl closure is just like, all right, I, I feel fulfilled. Like I now I know. Yeah. I know who I am. I know where I came from. I know my people. Yeah. And it was just an incredibly rewarding. Yeah. It's a it's it's almost unbelievable how grounding it can be. You know you are the fruit of some tree, but being actually yeah. reattached to that tree and looking back down the branch you came from and then down the yeah. trunk into the roots is so incredibly it centers you in a way that you can't predict. You know, you, you feel like you want to know these people, know who they are, know some of your history, but you you can't even fathom until you see it how deeply it impacts you to get that kind of information. You know, when I met my biological mother, she was a genealogist, and she handed me records going all the way back to the days of the slave trade in this country. And just, mm -hmm. you know, it took me from the lessons that I learned in school and the history that I had always known to an actual line of my own blood in this country. It's just really, really, really fascinating stuff. Tell me about your relationship with your sisters. Well, there's a, there's a bit of an iceberg beneath the water with the story of my dad. I'll give you the short version. When he showed me the picture of my sisters, I, I was so excited to meet them. And he said, we need to pump the brakes on that because I'm not, not ready to 
tell my family that you you exist. And again, my my heart sinks right at the mm. time, and I'm thinking, why not? <laughs> you know, like, are you ashamed? Are you ashamed that this happened? Would it rock your marriage? Like, was there some infidelity that you're not telling me? Like, what? Why not tell your family? He wouldn't really tell me. He wasn't a super good communicator. Mm. He couldn't articulate, you know, feelings really well. He was kind of old school that way. But he just said, I'm not ready and they're not ready. And so I had to respect that. As difficult as it was, I said, you know, I have to let you know that I can see their Facebook pages. And at this point, it was Instagram. I, you know, I can see their lives. And he goes, oh, that's fine. It's just, you know, just don't don't contact them. And I said, of course, I will never go behind your back. I will not betray your trust and, and I will never reach out to them. I'll wait till you're ready. And so this went on, Damon, for another year, another year. It went on for seven years mm. and my dad would not tell his family. And by this time, my wife is furious with him. She's just like, how could you put up with him? How, you know, I, I can't believe he won't tell his family. What is wrong? How can you be so understanding? And I just said, you know, I don't want to happen with him with what happened to my mom, which is, it's a closed chapter. I have no, no contact. And I don't, I'm just hanging by a thread here. Like we're, we are slowly building a relationship together. He's, he's telling me all the information I want, but I also have to be respectful of his privacy. I don't know why he won't tell me and he won't tell them. There's got to be a, a reason. And, and every year, you know, at this point, we were really developing a relationship. You know, after a few years, I was calling him dad and warming up to the idea that, you know, he was my dad and he, and he was warming up to the idea that he had a son. And telling me all these things that he was doing and you know, building a relationship. And, and I would, I got to the point where I was saying, listen, dad, you're in your sixties and no one knows the future. I said, if, if some point, you know, you're gone from this earth, if you die, all bets are off. I'm going to contact my sisters and my uncle and, you know, everyone else. And that's what I'm going to do. I said, don't you want the opportunity to tell them from your own lips, like that I exist and, you know, fill in the, whatever story you're going to tell them rather than for them to hear it from me after you're gone. And he would always admit, oh yeah, it's probably the right thing to do. So he was just him and Hamann, you know, for seven years. And finally I had this conversation because his health was diminishing a little bit. He had, of all things, back problems. Oh, boy. Uh, he, he had thrown out his back. And he was in the wine business carrying crates of wine to the, his clients, you know, to the restaurant clients. And he had hurt his back overdoing it. And uh, he was in pretty bad health. And he admitted that, that now is the time. And so I said, you're going to do it this weekend? He said, yes, I will. And it was a Friday. We talked. And on Saturday, he called me up. And he said, I, I told my wife. And she was mad that I didn't tell her sooner. <laughs> I was like, Oh, you're killing me. Like, <laughs> man. Yeah. But, but if, if you know him, I mean, that was him to a T. He was just like, much to do about nothing. Anyway, so she was, of course, you know, the same era as him and very progressive. They were both kind of hippy dippy, you know, very liberal thinkers. And she was, of course, thrilled. And she had remembered when I called, you know, all those years ago. And she put two and two together. That was me. And, and then he told his daughters. And then again, they had the same reaction. My one sister is a nurse at Stanford Hospital, you know, a real go-getter, a real boss. She's very talented. And 
And my other sister was studying abroad. She was in Spain at the time. And so we quickly, we quick, quickly put together this little family reunion plan where we get this Airbnb kind of in between Southern California and Northern California where they were. My uncle and aunt and, you know, all the family was invited. And so we decided to all meet and basically have a long weekend together. And that's what we did. We had this big reunion. We met at the Airbnb. I remember opening the door. They were already there. So we opened the door and they let us in and we're like, this is my family for the first time. I met everyone and it was another amazing moment. Surreal, totally weird, but at the same time, it was seamless. Just felt like we'd known each other our whole lives. We picked up sort of right from scratch and were immediately connected and started filling in the stories of how we grew up and what we'd missed out on. And we cried and we laughed and we played games and we, I mean, it was just a good time. It was amazing. And, you know, and my sisters and I, that other sister came home from study bride. We, we got to meet and we've been building this relationship for the past four years. So we've, we've been in reunion about four years and a quick story on my dad. So, in 2019, he went in for back surgery to get his back problem fixed. And he went through the surgery great. He came out flying colors. I flew up, saw him in the hospital in recovery. He gave me two thumbs up. We hugged and kissed. And I, I flew back to LA thinking everything was fine. And my sister, who was, you know, she lives up there, stayed with him, called me back 24 hours later, basically when I had landed and said that dad had got an infection. And because he was low immunity because of all the antibiotics and medicine he was on through the surgery, that he had passed away, you know, quickly. And he died. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? That's crazy. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And so that was oh just gosh. like another, another blow. And I was like, you know, we had a you know, few short years together and now he's gone. <laughs> And, uh, mm -hmm. but I was in retrospect, I was very grateful that the, the time we had together, even though it was short right? and it kind of solidified the love and the relationship between me and my sisters. Cause we thought, well, it's just us now. Of course their mom is wonderful and healthy and amazing. And she's got to carry on now without dad, but we're all kind of like building this new family dynamic and, they live up north. I live down south, but you know we're very close and we love each other. And you know we're building this relationship, and so it's it's wonderful. It's been it's been everything to me. I have to say that's amazing. That's really yeah. incredible. That's I'm really glad to hear that. I'm so sorry for your loss, but it really is good to go through those experiences of positivity and a deep connection, especially before the folks you're looking for are gone. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad he came clean, and I'm glad everybody was like, "What the hell were you waiting for?" You know what I mean. Brian told me he shared some of his reunion journey with his adoptive mother in the beginning when he was a teenager. She acted like she was respectful of his decision to search, giving him the signal he should do whatever he wanted to do. Since she had already deprioritized Brian and she was busy as a single mother between divorces, then she was busy living her life with her husband of the moment, Brian decided he should create some healthy boundaries for himself, separating from his adoptive mother, distancing himself from her. He went off to college, launched the rest of his life, and he has created a loving family of his own with children he prioritizes. 
he drifted further and further from his adoptive mother. Their relationship is estranged today. I created the separation. I created the boundary because I felt like she, she was not a healthy influence in my life. Had, hadn't ever been really. Sure, she, she put some food on the table and she put a roof over my head when I needed it. She was there for me with the core basics. But everything else was a train wreck. And, and I didn't want to be on a train that was crashing every few years. And so I, I, I jumped from that train and, and started a new, new path. Yeah. And, and as I grew into an adult and, and became a parent, then it became even more clear to me the decisions that she made. And they weren't in my best interest. And, you know, that became super clear. Like, oh, she had a choice to choose me or to choose that other guy <laughs> or to choose both. And she she made a binary choice to go all in on that guy and leave me out to fend for myself. That was deeply hurtful. And so I think it's just as a result, I, I just wanted to drift apart and just start, you know, something new. Yeah. And so... We, we are not close today. We don't talk. I mean, my kids will have contact with her from time to time, but like, it's different. You know, it's not like a, a real grandparent kind of relationship with them. And certainly I don't think of her as my mother. And yeah. so it is a little bit weird on Mother's Day or Father's Day. I focus on my wife, obviously, because she's the, she's the mother of our children. <laughs> And my, you know, my mother-in-law is in our life and my father-in-law is in our life. So there's that, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit painful to think that, that I don't have parents here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's not because they've died. It's because of poor choices, lack of sort of a concerted effort towards familial love. It's and, yeah. and sort of deprioritizing you when you should have been made number one. The choices shouldn't have been yeah. binary, you or. It should have been, I choose the man that also includes my yeah. son as part of his priorities. And that's really yeah. sad. Yeah. Well, and I, do, I do feel the loss when my dad died because mm -hmm. he, he was the only dad that I really felt yeah. I, I was beginning to call dad. Yeah. And, then, and then he was taken away too. Yeah. And so that was painful. But also meaningful. It's complicated, right? Like there's bittersweet feelings of man. I wish, I wish I could have been part of his life, or he could have been part of mine. He missed all the good stuff. He missed the the baseball championships that I won. He missed the college graduations. He missed the birth of my kids. You know, he missed he missed everything basically. Yeah. But we did make the best of the years that we had together, and now he's gone. So that's that was hard. And you know, and now. The mother, the biological mother in my life, wants no contact. That's, although I will say that I, my door is still open. Like if she had a change of heart, I talked about this in a previous podcast of mine. That again, I can't imagine what it's like to give up a child. How traumatic, how much societal, religious pressure there must have been in the '60s when you gave up a child. I interviewed Leslie McKinnon, who's in that book, "The Girls Who Went Away," and she was describing that you were a pariah, basically. You were, you were the stain on humanity. If you were a woman who got pregnant and wasn't married, you were taken away to a different place. You had to have your child somewhere else. They often just came in and took your child away from you, gave it up for adoption to a what they would call a worthy family, right. as if you, you have no worth and this other family is more deserving because 
they have more money or maybe they are the right, you know, kind of family and society or whatever the circumstances, it's awful. So I recognize how traumatic and devastating that must have been for my mom. And that probably everything that's happening or happened is a result of that layered with some of these other complications. But it's like, you know, I don't have any contact with her, but but I'm open to it if she has a change of heart. Yeah. If that's even emotionally possible. It may not be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope it is. Be, I, Sometimes time, age, being forced to f- confront one's own mortality can definitely change a person's thoughts about prior decisions. And I'm hopeful that she will come around. So I definitely wish you the best on that. There's still time and there's still hope. So Yeah. I am not holding my breath. I, I hear you. I hear you, but, yeah. but it's worth putting it out in the universe that your door is open because yes. it's it's a two-way street. And if you close your door and she opens hers, then you're still where yeah. you were. Brian, the creator that he is, has launched a podcast called Living in Adoption Land. When he opens the show, he says, This is the podcast I wish I had before I started my journey. I've listened to Brian tell some of his story with introspection in the first few episodes. I heard an episode with Leslie McKinnon, one of the women featured in Ann Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away, share her story of her pregnancies, adoption placements, judgments for her actions, and how her experience years ago drives her work today. I'm currently listening to an episode with Tony Corsentino, who's discussing his adoption reunion journey, the right to privacy versus the right to know one's identity, and his work to document the issues called This Is Not a Legal Record. Brian is interviewing people across the adoption constellation on his new show. It's a little bit like that famous book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. You know, if you have kids or, you know, you've read that book, it tells you everything you need to know when you're expecting a child. The podcast is a little bit that way. It's like everything to expect when you're adopted or adopting so it's it's for all the constellations in the adoption land universe. It's you know if, if you're an adoptee and you're you're searching for your birth parents or trying to figure out the intricacies of the law or how to navigate that, it's for you. If you're a parent who's given up a child and you want to find them, or you're wondering what to do, it's for you. If you are an adult couple in consideration of adoption, or you've already adopted kids and you want to know how to tell them that they're adopted or how to raise them or what to watch out for. This is for policymakers and lawmakers who are considering some of these really antiquated laws that still are keeping my true identity a state secret. I still don't have my original birth certificate. I can't get it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sealed by the state of California. I think 11 out of the 50 states, you can get access to birth certificates and whatnot, but still 39 states are closed. And we can't get basic access to medical records, which, you know, adoptees will say, this is our basic human rights and we should deserve access to that kind of stuff. So this is the podcast I wish I had before I started 30 years ago. I love it. Living in adoption land. Very good. Brian, this has been amazing. You've got quite a story of sort of growing up without some of the love and guidance that you wanted or needed, secondary rejection, but then finding one, your own family in a nuclear family that it sounds like is healthy and strong. You've, you know, 
touted the love of your wife and you've spoken about your kids more than once. Like you sound like you're a great dad. And I'm always amazed at an adoptee or a foster child who can come out and say, that's not how I want my kid's life to be. I'm going to do something else. And it sounds like you're on that track. And, and for you to have found your biological father, at least made the connection and gotten, you know, paternal connectivity to your sisters and his wife and all of that stuff. It sounds like there's there's some high and low points in your story. And I'm just, it sounds like you're thriving too, which is really great. So I appreciate you being here with me, man. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I, and I think it, you need to be congratulated too for your work. This is This is the work that matters. And, you know, the more voices we can have out there to amplify real stories, from all facets, you know? I mean, I appreciate you telling the adoptee story. It's a side of the story that is often told to sit down and shut up, frankly. Mm. People don't like to hear the negative side of things, but it's it's a reality. But good for you for doing your part in, in this important work. So, you know, I wanna do everything I can to help support you and amplify what you're doing. And I appreciate what, what, what you're doing. Thanks a lot, brother. I appreciate that very much. You take care, man. All the best to you. Okay, Brian? Okay, thanks. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey, it's me. Brian's boyhood lacked the love and connection that a child needs, so it was sad to hear that he wasn't the focus of his mother's attention, driving him to create separation from her. Then, to hear that Brian went on a long journey to find his birth mother, only to learn that he had found her, she didn't want contact, and it may have been to protect family wealth, was another heartbreak. But when Brian found Bruce, and his dad said he'd been expecting his call, I was so glad to hear he was receptive to reconnecting with the son he knew was out there somewhere. It's a cruel coincidence that Brian lost his maternal grandfather and his birth father to horrific complications in back surgery. But it's clear, Brian is glad for the short stint of time he did have with Bruce and the wonderful relationships Brian still has after Bruce's death. This was the last episode of Season 10 of the Who Am I Really podcast. It's time for a break for the summer so I can recharge, focus on some real estate investing projects, take some time away with family, and relax. I'll be back for Season 11 of the show in the fall of 2022. I'll miss you all while I'm gone. Stay safe and well until you hear from me again. In the meantime, I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Brian's journey that inspired you, validated your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? Really?